Dr. Joel Rosen, and I have the privilege to um, be talking with my good buddy, Dr. John Thomas, who's going to give us a little bit of information on the nutrigenomic aspect of adrenal fatigue and, and what you may be l missing, what we call the X factor, uh, to helping you recover with your adrenal fatigue nightmare. So, Dr. John, you on the line there? I am. How are you doing, Joel? I'm doing great. Welcome to the call, and, and I'm going to pick your brain today, so I really appreciate you being here. Um, typically what we do is we, we leave questions to the end. Everyone is muted right now. We're using Instant Teleseminar. Um, if they want to put their hands up at the end, then they can press star 2, and that will put them in a queue, and then we'll handle questions as they go along. And sometimes they can eat. They can also uh, type in their question, and we'll do our best to get around to that. So um, just a couple of housekeeping things. Um, the title of the presentation today is What Else is Missing? Uh, learn about the X factors that every adrenal fatigue sufferer must learn and, and whether or not their genes, genes are, are to blame. So let's just a quick legal disclaimer. Uh, the information included but not limited to text, graphic, images, and other materials contained in this presentation is for informational purposes only. The purpose of this conference is to provide an understanding and knowledge of various health topics. It's not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have in regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new health regimen. And never discard professional medical advice. Um, and I can't actually see below there uh, before um, doing anything um, that you haven't done already. So I don't know why I can't see that. Um, a couple of things I do want to mention, though. I want you guys to stick around for the entire presentation because we're going to be giving you a free gift at the end. I had to twist Dr. John's arm to um, give you guys a lot of value, not just in information, but in savings, too. So we'll talk about that at the end. And we're going to have a lot of fun together. we got a lot of slides to get through. And we're, before we get started, if you can, just try to turn your cell phones off, close your browser windows, and, and we'll talk about how you can work one-on-one with, -on -one with, with us at the end of this conference. And so just keep posted for that. Uh, I'm going to just run down what we're going to be covering. Uh, we've talked, you and I, John, about most of the time when you do a nutrigenomic test, the majority of the patients have no idea on how in-depth the information uh, can be and, and how that could be related to their ability to produce energy and, and their chronic suffering. And so we've estimated about 92% of chronic condition sufferers who have had a genetic test haven't been properly explained their results. They've just been really told about MTHFR and, and how that relates to their adrenal fatigue specifically. Uh, we're going to be talking about four tests that both your primary doctor and even your natural doctor are not really ordering and that you have to do if you want to consider all your bases covered and to help you and boost your energy and get back your 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 stress coping mechanisms and, and get your life back basically um, how your own unique environmental stressors must be incorporated that's what we call the epigenetic component uh, we talk about the genetic component being the hardware and the epigenetic component being the software and so if your your individual software is different than my individual software 
there, and we don't keep that into consideration when we're designing a program, ordering tests, or giving you some kind of protocol, then that cookie cutter <coughs> recipe is not necessarily going to work for you, and it might work for someone else. So we'll talk about that today, and that's really where Dr. John Thomas shines, and he's going to give us a lot of information on that. And then basically how your nutritional program is not a one-size-fit-all strategy, and how pulsing nutrients and living under the bell-shaped curve is the way to go. So, Dr. John, you helped me put this uh, slide presentation together and mostly all of your slides. So let's get started with you. And most people on this call know a lot about adrenal fatigue. They've been watching my fan page for a while, and I'm grateful that they're following me, and I'm hoping to provide them with a lot of information. But what's your definition here of adrenal fatigue? Well, you know, most of the people on can, you know, read the definition. I'm not about reading slides, but, you right. know, adrenal fatigue to me is, you know, it really becomes a multi, multi-system component that, you know, creates a chronic fatigue, um, you know, day in and day out. And, you know, you mentioned shortly about the epigenetic factors, and, you know, we'll get into that a little bit more, but it's really, for me, is there something that triggers a, a massive stress response and you lose feedback from different systems. For instance, you start losing feedback to the adrenal glands and over time you just you're not able to recover. All right, I was just that was a good definition. I, I do believe, you know, it's it's funny because I was saying that, you know, we, we you run into so much opposition with the traditional medical world with their their lack of um, diagnostic testing with the, you know, ACTH stimulation test and the morning cortisol test where it doesn't sh it doesn't really take into consideration the mechanics that can go wrong with with feedback loops and circadian rhythms and all the things you just mentioned. And so it, it, they don't believe in adrenal fatigue unless there is a, a an adrenal insufficiency, a primary Addison's problem or a secondary problem. Um, and so I've been really going to bat on the fact that trying to defend adrenal fatigue and, and going over these tests that we're going to go over today. But at the end of the day, I think it's a little short-sighted to say it's it's just the adrenals, right? Because it's the entire, from, from cellular energy production, you're talking about mitochondrial function. You're talking about uh, inflammatory production and cytokines and, and the stress response and the immune system. And it's, would you agree with that, John? Oh, absolutely. And, and then you even tie in other, you know, systems like thyroid function and androgenic hormones and how they give feedback to the brain a pituitary gland and that in itself can you know dysregulate adrenal function right so so i definitely would say that adrenal compromise or feedback loops or adrenal fatigue is is a great term to kind of understand how that stress has impacted the, the releasing of the stress hormones, but it's also a bit narrow-minded in terms of not really discussing the specific other other biochemical problems, and that's really where this nutrigenomic stuff is awesome. So let's go forward. Let's talk about what adrenal fatigue looks like. I think this is your slide that you put on here. So let's just talk a little bit about um, a chronic stress response and how circadian rhythms are really important to evaluate and not just looking at your 
morning cortisol level or an ACTH test that causes um, the adrenal gland to secrete cortisol. And, and if it doesn't cause it to secrete it, then it's diagnosed as an adrenal fatigue. But if it does cause it to, to secrete it, it's just thrown out with the baby in the bathwater and said, okay, this is, this is not a fatigue issue. So show, let's really talk about this slide and how that, how that really contradicts the fact that ACTH tests or a, a morning cortisol test is, is narrow-minded and misses the whole mechanical breakdown. Yeah, you know, and uh, most people that are familiar with adrenal fatigue are been di diagnosed with it by their doctor, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, their MD, naturopath, whoever they're working with. Um, you know, a salivary rhythm test is something they're comfortable with, and it's just an example of one of these tests. And the biggest take-home from this is that, you know, our cortisol output is it, – it, it's not the same – through the course of the day. And, and you mentioned the word circadian rhythm where your cortisol output should slowly increase as you sleep, where first thing in the morning, it is at the highest uh, accumulation that it, it is at. And then as the day goes on, you slowly get a dampening to where, you know, at nighttime when it's time to go to bed, your cortisol levels are at lowest. So you can, you know, get into that bed and, and you know, those covers and fall asleep, um, you know, you know, very easily and sleep soundly. Uh, so looking at a snapshot of cortisol, you know, through the course of the day, you can get an idea of what that cortisol load is different times of the day. And when we talk about adrenal fatigue, there's so many different variants and so many different patterns of how this can happen. And if you look at this salivary cortisol test here, this patient, they, they just have, you know, their cortisol levels are low, you know, morning and night and there's variations and then we'll get into some of the more advanced testing that looks at adrenal fatigue and not only looking at what is your cortisol output but more importantly how are you using that cortisol that your body is making Right, and I think that brings up a good point because some of these old tests, like these stress index with the salivary tests, um, they look at stages of of fatigue um, and and state, you know, first couple stages or a longer stage. Um, but but really, if there is some discoordination with the rhythm, meaning it's not high to low like you just mentioned, and there is some feedback loop problems, or you're mentioning that there's a, there, the curve is not as as ideal as it should be. It's not all under the the curve. Of, of a nice high to low and it's dysregulated or then then that's that really is what you're saying is 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 characteristic of an adrenal fatigue problem as well it's just not a chronic problem would you say that's correct uh you know yeah absolutely you know and and one of the fallbacks with the salivary you know tests that, that a lot of practitioners look at is you know, there, there's different stages of adrenal fatigue and, and, you know, how your body's pumping cortisol out, how your body's metabolizing it. And so, you know, you could have rhythms that, you know, maybe are on the higher end and your cortisol output is through the roof. And that could be a, a subtlety that your adrenals are just in overdrive and on their way to burning out, which can, you know, almost be like a false positive that there's an adrenal fatigue pattern. It just hasn't shown up on an accelerate test because your body's just in that, that, major stress response right so 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 are you still using the salivary testing or are you using mostly the um the the dutch test no i i, I, have, I haven't used salivary tests for about a year and a half i i use the dutch test primarily now 
Um, I, and I don't see myself going back just because of the amount of information that it gives. And we will talk about that later in this call because it gives you everything that a salivary test gives you plus so much more that gives us insight and how we can correlate that to uh, someone's genetic predisposition as well. Yeah, it's funny. I, uh, you know, I, I get you still probably consult with a lot of patients that have it, and that's fine because you're going to get some good quality information. I don't know if you know this. I did actually a test with um, two, two, with three labs, two, two salivary testing labs, and and then the Dutch test, and I did it all on the same day. I, I, did I ever tell you that? So what, what what I did was I spit into the tube for for company number one, spit into the tube for company number two, and then I did the dried urine test for the Dutch test, and one of these days, I got to publish my findings on either my blog or do a workshop on it because it's quite interesting. So for that reason alone, let alone the fact that you're looking at total metabolized cortisol and free cortisol and the estrogen metabolites and phase one and phase two detox and how that relates to methylation, all of the above. I just know for myself, looking at it, it was so much more accurate on that, and it was interesting. Interesting to see that yeah, as a. Go ahead. No, and I and I, and I and I agree that you know the the urinary uh, cortisol test, you know the Dutch test specifically, to me it gives a more clear picture that matches what one's going through, you know how they're feeling, how they're functioning. Um, where a lot of times on these salivary tests, what you would expect to see is not what is going on with that patient where the the Dutch test, which both of I know me and you are using now primarily, um, you know, really follows suit with what someone's experiencing day in, day out. Yeah, it's great. So okay, so we'll we'll push on here. So um so as you mentioned, the the circadian rhythm, I guess where our, our body is is programmed um with an internal time clock where certain metabolic functions happen at certain times of the day. And that's actually probably another good workshop that we can talk about with, with liver function and other, other functions during the day and ideal times to eat different kinds of food uh macronutrients. But there is the 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 fact that when we wake up in the morning like as you mentioned, our circadian rhythm is or is at the output of cortisol is at its highest in the morning, and there's that cortisol awakening response where within the first half hour you get up it 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 doubles its output um within the first half hour and we i i did a blog post on on that and and what they can do to try to reestablish that with some just some low low high intensity f- five minute exercises in the morning and then it just slowly slowly drops throughout the day and then anything that's dysregulated is is a is potentially a problem with the with the rhythm and are you finding that a lot with your patients you find that when you look at the actual curvature their rhythms are off the majority of the time or it, it, what what are you seeing with that? You know, in the patients we see that, you know, come in with chronic fatigue, you know, we do see dysregulation of the rhythm. And, you know, anything from a rhythm standpoint that looks different than this slide here in terms of that high output in the morning and that decrease it is a phase of adrenal fatigue at some level. Right. And are you finding uh, with those patients their hippocampus integrity and their memory? I, that's one of the very first questions I'll mm-hmm. ask them. You know, if I, if I see that, be oh, off. Absolutely. 
Yeah, tell me about your memory. All, yep. the, all my memories yeah. are horrible. So, so that's a good clue yep. for your rhythm being off. And then also you're not tired at the time of the day where it's nighttime and, and you're exhausted in the morning. Your your clocks, I always use, you know, me and my analogies. I, I look at, I joke around. It's like, it's like your sprinkler system that's set for 430 goes off at the wrong time. You know, that's basically right. like that. It's wound differently. So, all right, let's move on then. So, um, so how, this is right up your alley. How did genetics really relate to adrenal fatigue? Um, that's a, a, a broad question, but how are you finding um, w- when you get a genetic test back result back? What are you looking for in terms of um, how this would be correlated with an adrenal fatigue problem? Well, you know, one of the biggest things is, you know, from a genetic standpoint, a lot of people are are tested for specific genetic variants like MTHFR. You know, some have gone further than that. Some people have done 23andMe and have done interpretations. And there are specific genetic variants that we look at that relate to feedback loops because we know that the brain, you know, uh, you know, hypothalamus pituitary gland has feedback loops, you know, that's going to regulate adrenal function. And if there's problems with, you know, dopamine or serotonin, that can be a factor. If there's problems breaking down, you know, some of your catecholamines like epinephrine, norepinephrine, you know, that's going to cause dysregulation of your adrenals. And so there's specific genetic variants that we look at that are responsible for breaking down these neurotransmitters and these catecholamines. And what we're seeing is a lot of these people have some of these genetic variants that means that the enzymes that these genes make that are responsible for breaking down some of these chemicals, they're working at a slower pace. And because of one's genetic predisposition, these enzymes work a little bit slower, and then they have some type of stressor or epigenetic factor in their life. And based on their genetic predisposition, that itself may be a mechanism of how adrenal fatigue sets in. So what we say that there is a loss of feedback from brain to adrenal, uh, to the adrenal glands in terms of how those hormones are regulated, but we also know that there's genetic predisposition on how some of these enzymes play into that greatly as well. And so in some of these tests that I, you know, interpret every single day, a lot of people have variants in some of these enzymes, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, that definitely plays a, a very, very strong factor into maybe why that they are working on adrenal fatigue with certain nutrients like, you know, being adaptogens or DHEA or glandulars and just not responding to the, the support. And that's because their their enzymes or the genes that that code for enzymes that help reactions take place are not working at at, at a desired efficiency. Yeah, absolutely, and and it and it's and it's based on their genetic predisposition where those enzymes maybe you're working at seventy percent capacity or fifty percent capacity, and they just cannot break down some of these chemicals fast enough, and it will put even an, an additional stress in how these feedback loops can uh, regulate themselves. Yeah, um, that's that's a huge problem. And then and then so you're using the genetic information and obviously using their their their. Well, we'll talk as we go further. Their their lifestyle. And that's what I mentioned too. Is it's kind of like stress is. If you think of the whole nutrigenomic uh, methylation cycle and 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 the transsulfuration cycle is is like a watch with gears on it. And one one area of the gear turns and if it's locked up will impact another area of the gear. And so you have something downstream that. It's messed up from something that's upstream, but but really, would you agree to say this is what I've been telling patients is stress really 
exposes the weakness. So stress will speed up the, the demand for ch for speeding those gears up and, 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 and making energy to handle the, the vital processes like neurotransmission or detoxification or immune cell production for fighting off infections or nerve degener nerve regeneration. So is it fair to say that stress is, you know, the whole thing of stress is what causes these these gears to spin faster? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it all goes back to stress at some level and, and, you know, stress can play on these gears or these enzymes, you know, without a doubt and, and cause them to slow down even more, cause them to get dysregulated even more. So, you know, like I said, it all goes back to stress at some level. Right. Okay, so let's go. Let's go forward. So, so we talked about the difference between um, the catecholamines and maybe the the epinephrines and the the adrenaline. So, um, what what are well? I guess the way I explain it is you ha you get held up at gunpoint, and immediately terrible example, but you get held up at gunpoint, and and immediate, immediately you get that neurological. It's not even in the blood supply. It's a neurological feedback directly to the um, the the medulla and that's the the epinephrine so you're getting that adrenaline rush and then and then ultimately um the 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 blood supply kicks in and you have the ACTH and the CRH and you have the the catecholamines come in to sort of regulate the the change of of adrenaline uh changes in the body would you say that's correct oh absolutely you know and and one thing about you know from an adrenal standpoint is a lot of times when we're we're talking about adrenal fatigue and we're looking at testing that's looking at cortisol, you know, a, a lot of time, you know, the whole catecholamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine story is not being considered or not being addressed from a perspective of truly trying to heal the adrenals. So, so what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well, just from, a, you know, one of the big, you know, we're so focused around from an adrenal fatigue standpoint with we were talking about and how, you know, the body regulates itself when, when there's a stress response. When you mentioned, you know, somebody, you know, being stressed out, held by gunpoint, how that process happened. And, you know, trying to tie, you know, we'll tie this back into the genetic component that if somebody's adrenals are fatigued and, they, and their cortisol output is, is just not there and their buffer is, releasing epinephrine norepinephrine and there's genetic components that they're not able to metabolize or break that down uh, fast enough they kind of get into this vicious cycle and it's something that can truly inhibit their body from recovering and, and so it's like they're almost get into this chronic state of stress 24 7 and uh, from a chemical standpoint and their body is just fatigued and they can't put one foot in front of the other all right, so these people are in like a sympathetic overdrive and and then they're 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 not able to break these hormones down effectively and then ultimately that caused some resistance with the hormone as well I would imagine. Oh, absolutely. And and, and that's one of the biggest things we see from a you know trying to truly heal the adrenals, uh you know, you have to look at the you know, the whole picture. You have to look at cortisol. You have to look at the the epinephrine norepinephrine component you got to look at the genetic predisposition how the body's breaking those things down to truly respond to therapies in in healing adrenal function 
Yeah, and again, everyone's different, right? I mean, everyone's going to be at a oh. different stage. Everyone's going to have different epigenetic components. Everyone's going to have genetic components that are different, and mm-hmm. that's why it's kind of frustrating when you you know when you have patients that you know there's some great sources out there, but at the end of the day, really the 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 deciding factor is what's unique to that individual. And as long as the practitioner is trying to put all the clues together and really be the detective, like you've mentioned, and try to consider all the aspects. And so that's a good segue into some of the other tests that we're going to be talking about today as well. So, um, so how the genes? So let's talk about some of these important genes. You've mentioned a couple of them with the catecholamines and the and the um, and the adrenaline or epinephrine. So what what do you finding with your research the ones that you're keying in on when you get a genetic test back well we know that with these genetic tests there's so much information and a lot of it you know we still don't know the clinical relevance but there are some specific enzymes that we do know the clinical relevance uh, you know when we're talking about the breakdown of you know chemicals like dopamine and serotonin that are responsible for hypothalamus you know communication to pituitary and regulating the whole brain function in terms of the feedback to things like the adrenals and thyroid. There's, there's certain genetic enzymes, uh, COMP-T, MAL, PNMT, uh, DBH, dopamine beta-hydrogenase, that are responsible for breaking down some of these neurochemicals as the body's producing them. And a lot of people we're seeing have a strong genetic predisposition where that these enzymes just don't work at the rate they need to, and they start getting an abundance of these these neurotransmitters. And you mentioned that over time, that could lead to a resistance, and that could be one of the biggest components where the brain just will stop communicating to the peripheral tissues like the adrenal glands and that's where that loss of feedback can happen just based on a neurotransmitter resistance based on a genetic predisposition. And we'll talk about some of the epigenetic factors that play into this. Um, a lot of patients we also know from an adrenal standpoint have quite a bit of genetic variants with their cytochrome P450 enzymes that are responsible for function of the liver. But in relation to adrenal health, um, the CYP1B1 and the CYP21 enzymes are responsible for converting your progesterone into cortisol. And so we're seeing a lot of people have some variants with these enzymes where maybe they cannot just convert progesterone fast enough into cortisol based on these enzymes working a little bit slower. And, And so understanding the whole picture rather than just what is your cortisol output in the morning and in the afternoon and the nighttime, how does these, how these genetic variants play into that gives us a whole bigger picture on how to connect the dots on really what's going on with adrenal health. And then we get into some of the other enzymes, which we'll talk about in the Dutch test, um, these 5-alpha, 5-beta reductase enzymes, which are responsible for breaking down cortisol. And so what we're seeing a lot of times is sometimes these enzymes are working too slow. Sometimes these reductase enzymes are working too fast. And that kind of gets into how one is metabolizing cortisol based on how much cortisol they're, they're, they're pumping out. Uh, and then the MTHFR component, which we'll talk about that in a couple of the enzymes, which a lot of people, uh, more and more people are being tested for MTHFR, and that kind of gets into your methylation and methionine cycles and how you're making neurotransmitters, how you're methylating, which is kind of starts the party for this whole ad- adrenal health standpoint. 
Right. It's so it's upstream from from everything that flows down from that. But another good point exactly. that you mentioned too, which which I think is important to talk about, which you said right at the very beginning, is we're just learning about all these about all these um, different type of uh, enzymes and their impact on the body. And I use the example of an MRI where sometimes you can have an MRI where there's so much pathology on there, and the patient's doesn't have a lot of pain, they're playing golf every day, you're wondering how they're doing it. And then on other times you see patients that don't have such a, a bad MRI and, and they're in a lot of problems or a lot of pain and debilitation. And kind of the same thing in terms of um, the, these genes, you know, there's 24, 25,000 different genes, maybe more or less. And, and at the end of the day, we're still learning, we're still at the beginning of the rabbit hole to figure out how all of these relate and, and we go back and study a group and then see what ones of these genes were relevant and and then try to make some correlations but at the end of the day it's it comes down to talking to the patient seeing what their what their epigenetic stressors are what their what what's driving these problems and, and then figuring out from there of the ones that we do understand how that's expressing because some people may have um, some real um, malfunctioning or altered efficiencies in different areas and and really it comes down to really being that detective and looking at the different different tests, figuring out what their main problems are, and, and trying to understand, okay, we're never really going to fix these these genetic weak links because they're altered as they're altered, but we can certainly understand what other factors are helpful to cofactors to drive that reaction to help it work better. We can understand what things may be inhibiting it so that it's not working as well, or we can give something that is the end product of that gene so that even though it's not working as effectively, um, then we can start to give some things that w it would have produced had it been more effective. But really, back to what you're saying is you have to know the the information and and really put two and two together and, and see how it's expressing. So I think that's awesome. You've taught me a lot about that as well. So all right. So so here's a good um, here's a good uh, pathway chart for the breakdown of of dopamine. How would you? This is interesting. So how would you use this? In, in an assessment of someone who has an adrenal problem and you have their 23andMe um, report in front of you that you've been able to upload to your own uh, LiveWello um, Dr. Thomas uh, genetic nutrigenomic test, how would you, how would you use this a, a, as an example to, to figure out what, what area you're going to be looking at to help them recover with their adrenal problem? Okay, so you know when we look at neurotransmitters and these catecholamines, you know, we're really going back to the, the brain's response or the brain's regulation of things like the adrenal gland. And so what we do from this standpoint is we look at some of these enzymes. And so you have, you know, your neurotransmitters, you know, like dopamine, and you have, you know, other catecholamines, your norepinephrine, your epinephrine, and these enzymes that these genes make that we look at that are really, really clinically relevant and quite a few people have variants with the, some of these things, like the COMP-T, like the mouse SNP, like the PNMT variants. Um, people have problems where the, these genes make enzymes that don't function 100%. And how we can look at this is we can get a pretty good idea of what's going on with dopamine, what's going on with norepinephrine, what's possibly going on with epinephrine, and where is the traffic jamming through this process to find out is a COMP-T uh, gene, is a MAL gene, is a PNMT gene clinically relevant, and then we can look at other tests 
that look at metabolites, which we call organic acids, like a VMA, like a HVA, which gives us really insight into the picture of what's going on with these neurotransmitters, because if there's problems where your body cannot break dopamine down because of some of these genetic predispositions, and you start getting an accumulation of dopamine, and you develop a dopamine resistant that's going on, and dopamine can no longer get into the cell efficiently, and you start developing brain fog issues or, you know, uh, you know memory issues, realize dopamine is something that's going to start the party for adrenal health. Your adrenals never have a chance to heal. It doesn't matter how many adaptogens you take. It doesn't matter how much DHA you take. There is a bigger problem from a neurological standpoint, from a cellular standpoint, and how the body's breaking down these chemicals and these genetic reports will give us insight, and then we can look at some advanced testing to kind of find out where is the traffic in that highway coming to a stop. And then we know that these enzymes need certain cofactors like magnesium and SAM and vitamin B6 and vitamin B2, and we can add some of those nutrients in conjunction with what we're doing with adrenal support, and then we're addressing things from a multifaceted and a, a, a multi-system approach, which gives the adrenals the best chance to regulate and get back online and truly heal. It's amazing. Come, came a long way since uh, Hans Selye, who, who came up with this theory. I mean, I think I read his biography, and I thought he'd, he'd really be interested in, in knowing about the genetics. And because really, what you're doing is you're just you're using biochemistry 101 um, with the new advanced testing and and everything we know now with the Human Genome Project to to really go about it um, and and try to and that's what we'll get into in, in pulsing nutrients and try to get as much information as you possibly can and then try to impact that particular pathway and see how that causes um, a reaction in that patient and then decide how you can go from there because not no two patients are alike are you finding that with some of these pathway planners that you're looking at with some of these SNPs or malfunctioning genes that they have you try to do a cofactor or an end product, and one person reacts one way and one another person reacts another way? Are you finding that a lot in clinical practice? Oh, every day. Like I said, <laughs> no, no, two people, no two people are alike. Uh, you know, you have what's going on with them from a, a, a chemical standpoint, from, you know, what's going on with their adrenal function. Then you've got the genetic component, what's their genetic predisposition. Then you're talking about what are possibly some of the vitamins and minerals that are lacking that are cofactors for these enzymes to work. And then you get into the epigenetic component. And everybody's epigenetic stressors are completely different. Um, we know there's a lot of research on uh, an enzyme called dopamine beta hydrogenase, which converts dopamine to norepinephrine. And in a lot of the research in the autism spectrum disorder world on this enzyme and things like candida and especially colostrum infections will completely shut this enzyme down and dopamine just gets stuck and just accumulates and accumulates and accumulates and it cannot get out of the system. So, you know, no two people are alike. Their, their genetic component, their epigenetic component, um, you know, what's great about this is, you know, you go to work every day and, you know, it's an adventure. You have to put on that detective hat with every single person because no two people are exactly the same in terms of how you're going to heal their adrenals. Right. 
and, I, and that's where it comes down to hear, listening to the patient and talking to them and and really trying to understand what what their major major complaints are to understand where this may be expressing okay that's an awesome slide i i, I learned a little bit there too all right so cortisol, cortisol metabolism following through with these are basically what you call pathway planners where you mm -hmm. can look at the biochemistry of how different metabolites or or cortisol hormones or not cortisol hormones stress hormones are are broken down and and become active and inactive and so give us a little insight on on this slide here john that you put together yeah, and this is just a, a very basic, you know, uh, pathway in terms of how progesterone is converted into your active cortisol, um, and the markings in red are some of the enzymes that we'll talk about that we know are very, very clinically relevant, and, and as I mentioned before, you've got your progesterone is converted into cortisol. You need cytochrome P450 enzymes to do that, um, and we can look at somebody's genetic report to find out, do they have genetic problems with those enzyme or with those genes, which means that the enzymes that those genes make may work a little bit slower. So if somebody's got low cortisol and adequate progesterone or even low progesterone, it could be something where from a genetic standpoint, maybe the genetic side of things is they just can't convert progesterone into cortisol fast enough based on genetic predisposition. And then we also look, and what's great about the Dutch test is what you'll talk about, is once somebody's producing cortisol, we look at these reductase enzymes and how the body can convert cortisol into its metabolites like, uh, you know, tetrahydrocortisol and uh, tetrahydrocortisone, which is not on here, which we get a better depiction of, yes, we know your total cortisol, but we know your circadian rhythm, but how are you using that? And, and, and so we can really connect the dots in terms of how things are being burned through the system by looking at these metabolites, and then we can correlate that to somebody have maybe some genetic variants on why these enzymes may work a little slow or work a little fast. And so what's great about these genetic tests is all these things are in these tests. Right, right. So, so what you're basically doing is, if you, if you, to simplify, because this is difficult, co complicated information, um, but basically you have these tests that you, if you, if you had this bubble diagram, I liked how you were drawing on there. If you had this, if you had this bubble diagram, yeah, I just figured here, that out two slides ago. <laughs> I didn't know about that. So then, what you can do is you can put a number in here. I mean, I don't even know what the number it would be, but you would put a number in there, and you would look at the ranges for what's acceptable, and then you would put a number in here and look at the ranges for what's acceptable and then do the same thing and if you are low in a certain area then you can go back to the genetic test and look to see if these particular sorry about that these particular um, enzymes have deficiencies on them and then start to really be a detective and, and look and say hey you got a malfunctioning CYP1B1 um, enzyme it's it's it should be an eight lane highway and yours is a two lane it's homozygous, you inherited a bad SNP from mom and from dad, and it's working at, say, 30, 40, 50% capacity, and, and that's why your cortisol, which we filled in here, is low, and, and we can really look at the cofactors that help that CYP, CYP1B1 um, enzyme to work better, or we can look at the downstream mechanics, or most importantly, like you said, we can look at some of the roadblocks that inhibit this and really put together a specific protocol. That's that's basically what you're saying the, the beauty of all of this is. 
Oh, absolutely, because we, we're, we're going beyond just looking at what are your hormone levels. We're looking at your hormone levels, but then we're getting back to why is that hormone level high or low. And then we look, like you said, we look at the genetic component uh, or the enzymatic component, and then we can look at the cofactor component on why something is low or high, and it's just really getting in and connecting the dots and going more in depth. How many? Uh, this is you know because it's so it, it is such a learning curve for for not just the patient but for the doctor too. How many people are really doing this? Do you know a lot of people that are tying the you know connecting the dots like this? You know, I, I there's more and more. You know, a, a lot of the doctors that are well versed in the nutrigenomics are looking at it from this standpoint. Doctors that are running the Dutch test are looking at it from this standpoint, I'm assuming, but there's not a lot of doctors that run the Dutch test. I, I have yet to have a patient come in that has had a Dutch test in hand, um, you know, prior to consulting with me. So, you know, I would I would think that there's a handful out there, but then again, there's there's probably very few. Um, you know, as you know, Joel, that I, I you know I do teach and consult for some labs and, and supplement companies and um, teaching doctors. And when I bring this stuff up to doctors every single week that I'm doing lectures for, it's it's brand new information uh, for them. So um, you know, there are doctors out there, but it's far and few between. Well, not not only that too, because I do think that they are a lot of doctors that do the that that don't know about the actual Dutch test and and how insightful that can be for connecting the dots to the nutrigenomic stuff. But you know, like we said in our first bullet point, where 92% of people don't realize how important um, the information we get. I, I get a lot of patients that have their their genetic genie or MTHFR report, and and they're not told anything about this, especially as it relates to adrenal fatigue. They're not looking at these metabolites and these enzymes and, and how that relates to their their condition. And they really are looking at, especially from the medical world, which really stinks for them, is they're like, you know, I did MTH, I did methylfolate, and it didn't help me. You know, I mean, is that how 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 narrow-minded yeah. is that? Yeah, and we'll, and we'll talk about the, and we talk about supplementing or supporting the bell-shaped curve because the genetics, it's more than just getting in and supporting these genetic variants, which we'll talk about at the end more in depth because that is so important and how to how to support these gene, genetic predispositions properly. Awesome. All right, so so then moving along okay. to this slide here. So we talked a little bit about the importance of the liver, and really, I mean, I I, I we talk about um, I've talked about on my on the on the post on Facebook about adrenal fatigue, and one of the things that I really liked what Dr. Ben Lynch said was cancer is not a noun; it's a verb. And I think the same thing goes with any chronic condition in that adrenal fatigue; it's not a noun; it's a verb. Uh, liver detox or detoxification is not a noun; it's a verb. It's something that you do on a daily basis. You're either accumulating toxins at a faster rate that you're getting rid of them, or you're getting rid of them at a faster rate that you're that you're accumulating them. So let's talk a little bit about that and how that relates to adrenal fatigue and nutrigenomics and and epigenetics and um, what someone what you would use or how how you would use this slide as helping someone that has an adrenal problem. Yeah, you know, and, and so this is kind of breaking down what we just saw in the previous slide, you know, step by step. We know there's specific enzymes that convert progesterone into cortisol, and we can look at genetic reports to see if somebody is genetically predisposed to maybe these enzymes working a little bit slower, but which I know we talk about all the time is the epigenetics trumps or drives the genetic component. And so, so we can even look at a genetic report in somebody's 
uh, CYP or cytochrome P450 enzymes, they have no problems genetically, but if they have a hydrocarbon toxicity or, or a polychlorinated bisphenol toxicity, it's going to act like a homozygous variant, which means that those toxins are going to slow those enzymes down. So, you know, addressing the epigenetic environment and, and what's toxic load has to be a piece of the puzzle to truly recover from adrenal fatigue because if you you're, you're taking a japogen you're doing dhea you can do it all day long but if you are laden with hydrocarbon toxins that are shutting down your cytochrome p450 enzymes you are just never going to be able to convert these hormones properly so tell someone then where they would get hydrocarbon and PCP. Um, you know, for those that don't know, how would how would they have that? I was like, I don't. I, I mean, if well, I didn't you know, know about hydro, this. Yeah. yeah, hydrocarbons. You know, you're talking about. You know, you can think about. You know, something simple like you know diesel fumes, polychlorinated bisphenols. Uh, you know, if you were to go to Target or something and and grab the um, the receipt that they print you off the register. And it's that kind of shiny paper that, you know, that you can get, you know, polychlorinated bisphenols from that receipt paper. So it's stuff that's around us all day long uh, that we just, we take for granted that is just accumulating in our bodies that is playing into some of these, you know, why somebody's adrenals are not recovering how they should based on the therapies they're doing. So are you and, doing, and there, go ahead, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I'll say there's some tests that are out there that, that can look at some of these toxins. Um, and, and so, you know, we sometimes have to truly get in and put that detective hat on and get into somebody's history, get into what their previous toxic environment, what they were around. Were they, you know, working in, in a shop that, you know, had gas fumes just burning all day long, you know, and they worked there for decades, you know, and they've accumulated those toxins in their tissues that now they get stressed out. Now it becomes relevant in how their body can't recover. So, so just as a snapshot, what would you do in, if someone didn't have the uh, the CYP1B1 and CYP2 one having these um, homozygous SNPs or, or altered gene efficiency, but you saw somehow that their active cortisol levels were low, and they did have a history of working in a shop or being around these PCB or hydrocarbons? Um, just from a would you would you go ahead and test to confirm, or would you assume guilty in, until proven? otherwise and, and do some kind of uh, uh, pulsing protocol with nutrient support? Um, how would you go about that from a clinical point of view? Well, yeah, the, uh, some of the tests that are out there for some of these toxins are newer, and so we're still trying to get a baseline of how sensitive they are. Um, a lot of times, you know, with a very, very good thorough history, and, and, and I don't know, you, you and myself, Joel, we really get into you know, put on an investigative hat and, and really get into history on what is someone's toxic load and how that can be playing into it. It almost comes as a scenario. If it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck, it's a duck, that you know that if they worked in a specific environment for years and years and years, that probably is a factor that's playing into this, and you can start putting in some support in conjunction with what you're doing to start dampening that toxic burden on one's body. 
Yeah, it's amazing too, because as I think about all the the variables that go into it, and then you think about um, what we talked about in the beginning, where the medical model looks at the ACTH test or the the morning cortisol, and and really, if if there's a morning cortisol, I see so many people bring in their blood work and they have a cortisol value, and the doctor said that my cortisol levels were normal, um, which is such a low value anyways, it can mount some kind of response. But how how uh, blindsided is it that you're not considering environmental toxicities that are causing these enzymes that convert the progesterone into the active form of cortisol could be causing that amount to be not ne a negative amount, but certainly could be impacting it. And then, and then really the whole the, sh the whole diagnosis is not only missed; it's it's not even considered a legitimate condition. So it's it's amazing. Right. It's, you know it. And, you know, I've, I've used an example too, Joel, is like, you know, when we're looking at all these different pieces, you know, besides just, you know, looking at, you know, morning cortisol in the blood, when we're looking at it from this perspective, when we're looking at hormone levels through the day, we're looking at enzymes, we're looking at metabolites, we're looking at the epigenetic and toxic burden on one, it, it's like we're getting all the ingredients for the cake. And when a doctor is just running cortisol, they're trying to bake a cake and all they're trying to do is all they're just doing is putting eggs in and they don't have all the ingredients. And so to really bake a great cake, you have to have all the ingredients in there. And this approach is looking at things with all the ingredients in the mix. All right. Gluten-free cake, right? <laughs> Gluten-free. Absolutely. Uh, okay. All right. So, so cortisol metabolites, um, let's get into this slide. This is where really the Dutch test shines. Um, but I like that you have these new, um, enzymes or SNPs on here that, that you get from your genetic report that can really give you an idea why someone would be going down a more alpha pathway, which is more inflammatory versus a beta pathway. So let's, let's link this back to what you're seeing with your genetic tests and, and how that would impact your decision making on what you would do with that patient. Yeah, you know, and it really comes down to is you can, with a Dutch test, you can get the numbers. You can get your cortisol numbers. You can get your metabolite numbers, your, you know, your tetrahydrocortisol numbers, which is that THF. And then you can kind of see highs and lows and then really go back to your genetic test to find out how clinically relevant some of these things can be. And what's really, really great about this is, you know, we're, we're taught that, wow, you know, cortisol, it's very dependent on blood sugar, right? You know, one of the big factors for true adrenal health is you got to work hard on regulating your blood sugar. And, you know, you kind of say, well, why? Well, what is the component there? And, and if you look at the last little snippet there, we kind of get into the epigenetic component. These SRD 5-alpha and 5-beta reductase enzymes, they are driven or they're sped up or slowed down by other components. So they're, these enzymes are affected by things like thyroid dysfunction. So if somebody's got hypothyroidism on top of it, that's going to affect how they're metabolizing their cortisol. If somebody's got blood sugar issues, that's going to affect how their cortisol is being metabolized because those stressors are playing on these reductase enzymes. So, you know, it, it gets into another piece of the component where you have to look at other systems in terms of how much inflammation they have, thyroid function, you know, how's their blood sugar levels, because we know that if those things are pieces of the puzzle as well that aren't addressed, you, like I said, I'm going to go back. You move all the therapies you want to try and get that cortisol, cortisol levels up, but if you're not doing something to address stress on those enzymes, you're never going to get to where you want to go. 
Are you? Uh, that's interesting. Are you finding that there's double whammies? That th those are meaning those those particular SNPs, SRD5B, SRD5A, that they are um, not only they're highly polymorphic in in your sample. So you're seeing a lot of people coming back with uh, heterozygous or homozygous on top of those epigenetic factors you just mentioned, like blood sugar issues or thyroid low function. Are you seeing a lot of relevant um, highly polymorphic uh, findings on those enzymes? On the reductase enzymes, not a lot. Uh, on the cytochrome P450 enzymes, we just talked about on the, on the previous slide, I see yeah. heterozygous and homozygous SNPs on that all the time. Um, right. These reductase enzymes, we're trying to really find out the clinical relevance to get the SRD locations. Um, but we know that I am seeing ones that are heterozygous. And so then it comes into that double whammy where somebody is genetically predisposed and they have low thyroid issues or they're genetically predisposed and their blood sugar, you know, runs at 74 or they're, you know, genetically predisposed and their C-reactive protein is, is six, you know, so absolutely. Right. There's definitely the genetic component. There is not a lot of polymorphic issues like you would see, you know, with MTHFR, but it definitely is there. And when you go look for it, at least you have an answer is it a piece of the puzzle or not? And for those that it is, it's another component that we can address that is going to give them a better chance to recover. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I don't, you probably relate this to this a lot. I call it, unfortunately, the perfect storm practice, right? I mean, people that are on the yeah. call tonight, people that are getting their genetic reports in hand, and you've had them call you, and they they know their stuff really well. They they talk about this snip and that snip, um, but the the thing that they're missing out on is that other side of that perfect storm where they have the low thyroid function and the gut inflammation and the blood sugar issues and the stressors and the epigenetic components that are causing that double whammy and causing an expressed uh, alteration in their gene meet with the epigenetic component to cause a complete halting of traffic to the destination. I think you're fi you're finding that a lot too, I would imagine, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, so, so the methylation pathway, and this is what most people are familiar with, um, where where they have their MTHFR, and I get a lot of that. I've had a patient tell me that they, you know, that she should have had um, more information on her on a diet where she had an heterozygous MTHFR, and I and I was thinking that's just sort of the start of things. You know, that's not right. really. I mean, who doesn't have that? You know, everyone kind of has that. So um, I guess just from um, if we're looking from out from outer space, and this is planet Earth here. Um, how, how how would you kind of assess the the whole methylation cycle? Um, how would you, I guess what, explain why um, this methylation cycle is important to for the adrenal fatigue sufferer from from the upstream mechanisms, but also the whole picture as certain areas around around this area or certain areas down here. All of these need to be considered in order to effectively help that patient as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and, and we're just going to talk about the methylation component really briefly because, you know, that's something that we would need, you know, a separate, you know, um, yeah, you know call right. to really do it justice. But, you know, I, I look at it from a methylation standpoint. And these enzymes, they make things and they break things down, and it really comes down to, you know, are you putting enough gas in the tank and how are you using that gas in the tank? And so from an adrenal standpoint, if somebody has, you know, front-end genetic issues where they have an MTHFR genetic variant or they have a, 
a, a uh, MAT genetic variant where they can't produce an, enough sampromethionine. You know, they they just can't put enough gas in the tank to be able to methylate properly to make enough dopamine, to make enough serotonin, to have the brain, you know, relay to stimulate to make adrenal hormone, to make thyroid hormone, to make androgenic hormones. So we, we look at these methylation pathways from a standpoint of how much you're putting in and how much are you getting out of it. And some people have problems on both ends. Some people have bigger problems on the front end. Some people have bigger problems on the back end. And so really getting into this genetic story more in depth gives us a whole lot more insight into, you know, a starting point and an ending point when looking at adrenal issues. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've, you know, as I say, we come up with all these analogies, and one of the ways I, I explain that is it depends. Like if you have a water slide, and and you have a lot of log jams on the water slide, you, you have to figure out what the best way of unclogging that is. And sometimes it could be uh, depending on what's expressing what what the person's main symptom are uh, are if they're anxious, if they have energy issues, if they're inflamed, if their hair is turning gray, if they're they're depressed or they have multiple viral infections will depend on what strategy you'll use to unclog that that water slide whether it be from the bottom going up or from the up going down um, more often than not do you find that you're trying to go more from the bottom up or from the up from the top down or, do, or is patient to patient dependent it's patient to patient and and every like I said everybody is different and, and to really kind of put a percentage on who's got, you know, problems on the top end, who's got problems on the bottom end, it, you know, it, it's, it varies, you know, it could be something where over the course of a month, uh, you know, 80% of patients have problems with front end and then it flips a switch. So no two patients are exactly alike when it comes to this genetic and epigenetic story. Yeah, I still I remember listening to one of your seminars before, and you're talking about how your patients loved you at the beginning when you didn't know as much as you did, and you gave them you know methylfolate, and they did awesome, and then then you get that difficult you know case that that has more involved than just some of those up 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 um, up uh, upline uh, methylation problems, and and then those are the people that crash. So why does that happen? Yeah. So explain why someone would have you know, something like that and then crash when they feel good for maybe one or day or two days, but then it causes anxiety and jitteriness or it causes them to, to crash back. Tell, tell, tell our listeners why that happens. Yeah, we'll talk more about this too when we talk about that bell-shaped curve analogy and, and supporting that. But really what you see a lot of times is, uh, you know, somebody gets diagnosed with MTHFR genetic variants. They're prescribed, you know, seven milligrams or 50 milligrams of Deplin and, and maybe they feel great for a couple of days, they crash, or maybe they crash right out of the gate. It's almost like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. You know, it's, just, it's, it's too much too soon. And if there's problems along the way, besides MTHFR, it's like you're putting a bunch into the system, and then the next step of the process can't handle that load, and then the system just shuts down and crashes. So there, there's definitely a way to supplement and to pulse, and, and you have to look at more than just one component, you have to look at more than just MTHFR, just like when we're talking about adrenals, you really have to look at more than just what your cortisol output is. You have to look at other other pieces of the puzzle to truly get a, a great clinical picture of what's going on. 
Awesome. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna move right along here. So that here's here is that methylation cycle. So talk about some of these important um, SNPs that you're seeing from upstream mechanisms and and what they can do to to get an idea on how relevant this is with their adrenal fatigue specifically. Yeah, so this is a picture of the methylation or, or a methionine cycle, what we call the methylation cycle. Uh, these, you know, um, little boxes in, in orange are, are some of the main enzymes in this cycle, MTHFR, MTR, methionine synthase, and methionine synthase reductase, um, you know, CBS, AHCY. These are some of the clinically relevant uh, variants that we know. And the whole point of this cycle is you take food, you, you take vitamins, and what happens is they get pumped into this methionine cycle, and the whole point of this is to really do two things. is to make something called SAM, which behind ATP is the second most produced thing in the body, and it's the body's primary methyl donor. And what SAM does is it donates methyl groups to make things like DNA and to make things like neurotransmitters. And the cycle spins about a billion times per second, and you are just producing SAM all the time, that it's helping the body produce things like DNA, the neurotransmitters, proteins, fatty acids. Another component of the cycle is to make an antioxidant called glutathione. And glutathione is vital for immune health. Glutathione is vital for helping clearing toxins and heavy metals. And so this cycle is in our cells. It is a fast-moving system. And what we can do is, through these genetic reports, is look to find out with these enzymes is somebody genetically predisposed for these enzymes to possibly work a little slower than they should, which then in itself is going to shut down or slow down the whole system and then function over time starts to decrease and we develop symptoms. Yeah, that's that's great. And one of the things I tell patients, I've done a couple of videos on this, is if I hadn't even seen your genetic report, um, one of the things you can do just naturally is is avoid uh, folic acid and then eat as much folate as possible. And and then that way, whether you have these genetic weak links or not, you're you're getting that end product. So I kind of say it's like it's a highway that you're being beamed down to the to the first checkpoint. And then and then the other thing is um, the methionine, which if you can eat healthy the grass-fed, antibiotic, hormone-free meats for those tougher that are vegetarians, um, and you can really uh, break down that 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 intrinsic factor and absorb B12. Then that's really how we're manufactured to to help this methionine uh, methylation SAMe cycle um, by but naturally but then you have the whole environmental toxicities you have man-made foods packaged foods pesticides gmos um herbicides um uh, arsenic in foods antibiotics and then all of a sudden you start having these um these cycles that don't work properly and then impact your inflammatory responses and 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 can lead to in effect an adrenal fatigue problem correct yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and it always goes back to the epigenetic component at, at some level. And we always say that this methionine or methylation cycle should function at, at an optimal rate with the food that you're eating. Now, one's genetic predisposition may slow that down, but then we talk about all the things that you listed. You know, that just puts such a stress on these enzymes that they just don't have a chance to function 100%. And so, you know, with how toxic our environment it is, you know, we don't we don't stand a fighting chance, and then that those are those that are genetically predisposed, you know, have even a harder time. 
But the good news is there's hope, right? I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of paint a dim picture where, you know, there's all these environmental toxins. But at, on, the, on the flip side is look at this genetic information we know about. We, I mean, you're putting pathway planners on there. We're, we're doing um, testing with, with metabolites and, and enzymes that we know more about and what are the cofactors that make those things work better and what are the, what are the uh, inhibitors that slow those things down. So for all those that are, are hearing about the, the epigenetic components, and certainly there is, it's a bit of a scary world in the environment toxic world we live in, but at the same time, you got practitioners, functional medicine practitioners, nutrigenomic practitioners that understand it and get it and are basically using it. So so, off to, so basically, methylation is about um, making and breaking things. I think that's what you, you basically say. And, yeah, and if you're, it's right? as simple as that. Yep, making making things in the body like neurotransmitters, clearing things out through detoxification, You know, it, it really is as simple as that. Cool. So, and then as far as um, some some genetic with with you know you get a lot of people. How would you answer this question? It's a bit of a tangent though. Um, with cancer and oncogenes, and they have you know they don't have the cancer epigenetic component. Do you get that in practice where patients are are just looking at it from that point of view? And how do you just sort of nip that in the bud and try to explain what we've been talking about for the last hour? What do you what do you, what's the short version of that? Yeah, you know, we see that from time to time, and I always just tell patients, you know, just because you you have a genetic predisposition, you know, it, it, it's not the be-all, end-all. Um, we know that, you know, once you have a, a slowdown or what we call depleted methyl groups, that in itself can turn, you know, bad genes on and turn the good genes off. So it really becomes more, you know, less about a genetic component, but more about the functional genetic component, which, you know, that's, uh, you know, something we could really delve into on a, a call in the future. Cool. All right. So, so moving right along, then the, that MTHFR gene is is that last step in the folic to folate production, which is basically the next step to be able to make um, methionine, which would then make um, SAMe. And anywhere along the line where there's some mutations or epigenetic components, then you're not going to make that second most abundant energy source in the body, which is the SAMe, and that's being impacted by folic acid. Acid and and other things like nitric oxide. I know, John, you do a lot. We'll have to put together a, a seminar for those that um, have B12 issues and B12s through the roof, or they've gone for for um, a sedative nitric oxide and that really crashed them. So that's a whole other teaser sort of webinar that we can do. But um, yeah. that's. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. So let's talk about what the doctors are missing with um we've already alluded to it a bunch of times. So really the testing that you you find that can be helpful um and and really really put the detective hat on and solve the crime. Right. Yeah, and and from a genetic standpoint, you know, going beyond MTHFR, uh 23me is is in my opinion, by far the most thorough and cost-effective way to do it. And then you have to take that raw data and, and use it um, in some other platform to be able to interpret the, interpret the data uh, because 23andMe in itself doesn't do justice in giving us the information that we need. They do give us a raw data file that gives us all your, uh, you know, genetic, enzymatic, um, you know, information. And so that is something that is so valuable for 
what it gives us in, into looking at these pictures. And then there's some additional tests, and I like to use the word functional genetics because the genetics is not the be-all end-all. We, we need additional things to determine what genetic predispositions are clinically relevant. Um, we've talked about the Dutch test, which we'll talk about. You know, we'll look at a couple of these sample tests. Um, and what's great about it is it gives us everything the salivary tests give us, but it also gives us metabolites, and then we can correlate that back to genetics. And then there's tests like the organic acids or methylation pathway testing, uh, neurobiogenic amines test, which gives us insight into neurotransmitters and neurotransmitter metabolites. And so just these tests are there to allow us to really, really connect the dots and look at the 30,000-foot view and, and really put the pieces together. Yeah, it's awesome. And just dialing it back to what you said with the genetic test. So most patients don't understand how much relevancy that their their information that they ha they've had, and, I, and you probably get it too in practice, where someone says, "Oh, I did that a while ago. I did that test," and and they really never mm -hmm. did it justice. And so basically, what we're doing is we're getting their raw data from them, which they already have, if they've done the 23andMe test or any other ancestry sites, and then we can take that data, extract it and then put it into a, um, a genetic reporting site and then get these relevant gene SNPs that we've already talked about a little bit and then use these additional mm -hmm. functional genetic tests to, to glean more information, really, is what you're, what you're saying. Exactly. All right, so th yep. this is what it looks like. And, and so just a real quick synopsis on, on this with um, do you find, I mean, red, red is where you have two um, SNPs where from mom and dad and it's altered at a higher efficiency than the, than the yellow, which is um, one SNP from either mom or from dad, and then no SNPs, which is, are you finding that um, a lot of these relevancies are not just the homozygous two SNP um, problems where, where potentially the heterozygous yellow one SNP problems are, are expressing as well and, and causing some, some physical or just chronic problems? Yeah, you know, and even with that, we, you know, we talk about the epigenetic component, you know, depending on what one's toxic burden is, even if something is green on these reports where they, they have no genetic variants, you know, that could even be something that's relevant. But, you know, what, what these tests give us, it gives us probability of, of where things may fall by the, the, the wayside, you know, gives us indication of what rabbit holes maybe should we go look down and, and you know if something is homozygous or red where somebody's got two copies passed down that are altered you know we can assume that that maybe that enzyme is only going to work at you know 10 or 50 percent capacity and so it's got a high likelihood that it's going to work slower where something that's yellow maybe it's only going to work at 70 percent capacity so what these genetic tests give us is information on where to go look and how to connect the dots and, and one of the biggest things that you know when I first started out doing this and, and you learn real quick it doesn't work that way is you cannot treat or or support based on these tests alone you need other information you need a good history you need to really connect the dots to find out the clinical relevance of these reports Absolutely. So, and that's kind of like the, you know, like I think you've even mentioned too, I've heard you say before, it's, you know, you become, my joke is my moniker is my a ninja, but you become sort of a, a fifth degree black belt where you can kind of predict based on all the things that they're telling you, what their major symptoms are, um, you know, what some of their epigenetic historical findings, where they grew up and scorecard.org and looking at their zip code and seeing what the, the most environmentally toxic 
toxic uh, chemicals were in that area, and you're finding that um, that you kind of can predict where they're already um, expressing and then put together that living under the bell-shaped curve pulse nutrient protocol um, where where you can make some important improvements. You finding that that's what's happening as well with with your learning curve with helping these patients? Yeah, you know, um, you know, from sometimes it's not that easy, but a lot of times, you know, it 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 gives us a lot of insight on on how to do things and where to start and and how to um, and what what nutrients to put in place. So yeah, they, these tests, you know, for me, they're invaluable. Um, it, it's something that uh, you know I, I can't imagine not having this information working with somebody. Um, it's just it's just great information. Awesome. So here's the Dutch test. Um, do you ever do the Dutch test on your on yourself? I did. How'd you, how'd you look? Okay. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> you know. Um, hey, I you know found a couple things out and, and started addressing things and then you know noticed improvement. So that's what it's about, right? So right, yeah, I thought right. based on a previous salivary test that um, looked good. And so for me, you know, my test looked like. Uh, you know where the the sort the cortisol rhythm looked good, but I was just burning through my cortisol. I was metabolizing it way too rapidly, and so you know it was really kind of getting in and investigating why that was happening. So when we look at these Dutch tests, it's great, and we're going to look at some of the breakdowns. But you know, at the bottom we see the rhythm, and, and that's what we see on salivary tests in terms of looking at cortisol through the day. And so this patient right here has a pretty decent rhythm. Uh, you know in terms of how their cortisol is being output through the day, their their 24-hour free cortisol looks pretty good. But if we look at their metabolized cortisol, they are just burning through it. And, and so whatever gas they're putting in the tank on, a, on a, uh, a daily basis, they are just burning through it and just not leaving anything in the reserve. And so even though the rhythm looks good and, and their cortisol output looks good, and, and so the information here and here is stuff we would see on a, a typical salivary uh, test, but from a metabolite standpoint, there's something going on in how this person is just using cortisol in excess. There's definitely some type of stress response going on. Why does the body need to metabolize and burn through cortisol at a high rate? And, and this is where the Dutch test really separates itself because of that information it gives us. Yeah, and I mean, you can just see here too. I mean, you can see that this person's also producing a lot of DHEA as well, right? Look on that, yep. on that one there, and even testosterone. Yep. And they're all, they're off yeah. the charts on all of that. What's going on here? Um, all right, so yeah. so that's pretty cool. I had a patient who um, was interesting where if you can kind of look at the dials, and that's what's cool. This is the summary page where it tells you about the sex hormones and the and the rhythm, and then it tells you about the adrenal hormones. I had a patient who was over here on the low end of free cortisol, and that's where it, rep it represents anywhere between 1% to 3% of the total um, cortisol that's produced. So with just the salivary test, I would say, okay, this person has really low cortisol output. Free cortisol is very low. Let's give them some stimulants, some boost. But on the flip side, their cortisol metabolized was really high, so it wasn't that they weren't producing enough cortisol to get them through the day. They were putting put, producing way too much. It's just that they have a, a, a stress response that's that needs to be addressed and I don't I want to calm that down versus um I want to give them some more stimulation to to give them more fuel for the fire. Are you finding that you're seeing some of those with those tests as well, John? 
Absolutely. And a lot of people will come in, they'll have a, a salary test they did in the past. And then when you look at it from this perspective, you know, and look at it, you know, like, okay, are they in a, in a stress response where they're burning through it? The last thing you probably want to do is, is add more stimulating nutrients to it because it's just going to burn things out even more. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's cool with that test. Let's go on to the next one. Um, basically I, this is great because you can see the, um, I kind of go through this very quickly because this is just the plots on, on a graph and, and it tells you about mm -hmm. the, the metabolites. So then when we come back to the next page, I, I explain to them, okay, these were the plots that we got from, from these values on the last slide. Um, but this is the actual um, hormone pattern. And so that's what you can see here is you can see again, the, actually is this, this is um, the, so, oh, this is an example here, John, which I just mentioned. Someone has, yeah. has low free cortisol but they're they're off the charts on on um on the uh total metabolized cortisol so um and then we look at the the other values on cortisone and cortisol and 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 um oh okay so something you're missing on this one is maybe talk real quick about how you look at the estrogen and and how that estrogen can relate to um you know especially with women that are fatigued and they may be going down the wrong pathway um maybe just talk quick briefly so that we can move along on on how that dutch test captures that component of it yeah well, and the, well uh, you know from an estrogen standpoint the dutch test you know it'll look at estrogen you know your your you know, your three estrogens also gives us insight into estrogen metabolites, your your two, your four, your sixteen hydroxy estrogens. And oddly enough, some of the um the enzymes uh that are responsible, the cytochrome P four fifty enzymes that are responsible for converting uh from converting estrogen um through liver through liver detox are some of the same enzymes that are responsible for converting progesterone into cortisol so there is some overlap from a genetic standpoint and, and so you know when we talk about you know looking at adrenals and, and something like this dutch test you know it goes back to all the pieces of the puzzle and, and the androgenic hormone and estrogen component progesterone component are things you have to look at as well to really find out where things may be you know, backing up in the system. So what's great about this test is not only does it give us the adrenal and adrenal metabolites, it gives us our estrogen or estrogen metabolites, and then we can kind of just plug this into a pathway planner and, and correlate that to, you know, the genetic side of things and, and really find out where is the log jam or where is that traffic backing up. Are you doing that in practice, just kind of putting it on, like creating like a blank template and, and, and just following it through? Yeah, you know, because for me, it's like we have all these numbers, you know, that we can plot, and I have a genetic test, which we can throw on there, and you really start seeing patterns of, of where things are really bogging down, and then you you look at it from another level in terms of, okay, what do these enzymes need? And it may be something where somebody maybe just has a B6 deficiency. <laughs> and in yeah, right. conjunction with what you're doing from an adaptogenic standpoint or whatever, maybe just they need a boatload of B6 to kind of help unlock and get things through where things are, are, are locking down. So, um, yeah, you know, these, you know, plotting these things on these biochemical pathway charts, uh, when we look at this perspective, it, it just really connects the dots and, and gives us answers. Okay, so so then moving to the organic acid test. So one of the qu questions I would have for you is because I'm getting a lot of patients that have already had this, and 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 I think that along with 
not doing themselves justice with their DNA report that they've had. Um, they're not doing justice with the organic acid tests that they have because of what we've talked about in that they're not p putting the pieces of the puzzle together and saying, okay, the organic acid test, when it's done in conjunction with these nutrigenomic findings, with the epigenetic components that you get from the good history and finding out, and then just the Dutch test that we talked about, um, how what's the best utility or use for this test that has helped guide your treatment plan with the organic acid test for those that may have already had this that may have missed out on some of the important things that you need to do with with the information you get with this particular test yeah you know so when we look at you know back to that first slide there's things where um, we you know we can look at things from a uh, standpoint we talk about the epigenetic component things like candida if somebody's arabinose is elevated or if they have clostridium elevation with these markers we know that when we talk about some of the, uh, you know, front-end things, especially that deal with dopamine production, um, these infections can really slow down dopamine beta hydrogenase function, which is going to cause dopamine to just to, to stay elevated and, and lead to possibly a dopamine resistance issue. And, and you're never going to get the adrenals back online if your dopamine is regulated properly. So we can look at it from a standpoint of is there something that's possibly – epigenetically driving some of those variants. We can look at things like oxalates, which give us insight into, um, you know, possible candida components. Oxalates are also seen with chronic pain issues, chronic fatigue issues, migraines. Um, so if somebody is producing a bunch of oxalate crystals, uh, you know, it's something that needs to be addressed because that could be something that, you know, bogs down the system. Um, you know, patients have reoccurring UTIs. You know, I look at things like that. And then we get into things when we talk about the epigenetic standpoint. We talk about, you know, I know, Joel, you mentioned about mitochondrial health. Some of these mitochondrial markers in the Krebs cycle. And so if we start seeing things, you know, trend in a lower or higher, you know, we can plug these into these pathway planners and find out from a mitochondrial, mitochondrial standpoint, where are things getting stuck and why is maybe energy output from an ATP standpoint uh, not where it needs to be? And so there's enzymes from a genetic standpoint. There's cofactors like vitamin B2 and NADH that are needed through these mitochondrial markers. And we start seeing things trend high or low. It gives you an insight on where things are stuck. Um, you can look at these organic tests from a, a nutritional deficiency standpoint. So methylonic acid is probably one of the most sensitive markers for somebody who has a B12 deficiency. So this patient right here has a B12 deficiency. So when we talk about methylation, you need adequate B12 to methylate properly. To allow your adrenals to recover, you need methylation. You need B12. Um, one of the cofactors that's responsible, you know, through some of these catecholamine pathways and serotonin pathways, you know, uh, you know, vitamin B2. And, and so if somebody's got a deficiency, they're going to be have limitations if there's cofactor deficiencies along the way. And so we can look at these tests from a high to, from a uh, high or low standpoint with deficiencies. We can look at it from a standpoint of epigenetic factors. We can look at it from a mitochondrial health standpoint. It's just other information that is, is somewhat foundational before you even get in and possibly try and, you know, try and support to recover the adrenal glands because there's a handful of things in the organic acids test that can really limit one's function or, or limit one's recovery with traditional approaches like adaptogens or glandulars or things of that nature. 
Yeah, and I think that's great because I think, you know, in the beginning you want to control a patient's symptom. You want to establish trust. You want to get them feeling great uh, or at least as, as good as they can, as fast as they can. And, and that's what this test has utility with. But also um, it's also short-sighted, too, in knowing that there's another layer down, another layer down, another layer down that relates to all the other tests that we've talked about. And that's where you can get a little deeper and really start connecting the dots. So I think or, are you doing organic acid tests on everyone or are you doing that on just to select a bunch of patients. No, I I, I, run, I run organic acids on everyone just because it gives it, some of the information as a starting point. Um, you know, it, it's not an expensive test. A lot of people's insurance covers it. You know, so there, there's things where um, you know it's the for the information it gives to be able to address a genetic standpoint from a functional standpoint. It is something that I'm running on pretty much everybody. Yeah, that's awesome too. Are you just as a quick aside, quick question? Are you because this is through Great Plains? Are you doing their um, their 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 environmental one? We talked a little bit about the hydrocarbons and the mm -hmm. um, PCBs. Are you doing a lot of those as well? I am doing them. Like I said, they're newer tests, and so we're trying to figure out how how you know uh, valid they are. Um, I will run them. They're, they have a great test for glyphosate. Uh, which is pretty um, reliable. I actually ran that on myself and was a little surprised that, you know, my levels were a little higher. So, you know, uh, I, you know, make sure that I'm taking my glutathione when my neighbor's yards are being sprayed, things of that nature. Um, right. But, yeah, you know, I, I am running, especially if we get into somebody's history and we find out that they, you know, they had a very high likelihood of getting exposed to something, we can run these environmental panels to find out, okay, is that a piece of the puzzle that is maybe slowing down these enzymes that is and a reason why they're not recovering. Yeah, I joke around. It's like I love being a nerd because hey, you know you really try to understand this this biochemistry and 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 really it, it is biochemistry 101. It's just it's it's complicated stuff. And when you can start seeing clues about things that are high or low and and relate it to the clinical picture, um, then that's where you're really getting people that you're getting in the sweet spot. You're getting under that bell-shaped curve. So all right, so mm -hmm. moving right along, here's another test that we talked about that gives us a lot of value. So beyond just doing the um, genetic test with the MTHFR and, and the genetic, uh, the, the 23andMe. Um, tell us a little bit about how this can help with um, someone who has an adrenal problem to, to give us a little more insight on what's wrong with them and, and, how, and what this methylation test is all about here. Yeah, so this methylation test from Dr. Data gives us a handful of, of um, the, some of these substrates like methionine and cysteine and SAM and SAW. What's great about this, I get asked all the time, you know, I have I have an MTHFR. How much methylfolate do I need? I'm, you know, I'm like I don't know. You know, it's it just uh, you know how how you know how much how much dietary folate you get, all the other components. And so we can look at a test like this to find out is there problems putting gas in the tank? You know, so if somebody has an MTHFR variant, and do they need methylfolate? Maybe maybe not. So when we look at this test right here. This patient is low in methionine. This patient is low in SAM. This patient is low in SAW. So it's pretty typical that she's having problems methylating or she's just sucking uh, homocysteine down to make glutathione. So her methionine uh, cycle is on the deficient end. So a patient like this may need to supplement with a little bit more methylfolate, methylcobalamin, just because it's one of those things where she just can't keep enough gas in the tank. So a test like this really gives you insight into what's going on 
in terms of, you know, methylfolate or methylcobalamin support, glutathione support on how the system is functioning and are you underdoing it or overdoing it? That's awesome. So you would start, say, someone who's really low on that, you would tend to, so this would be giving you a little bit more certainty on not just pulsing with, you know, with uh, with methylfolate without understanding where they are in their numbers, basically. Yes. Um, all right, so tell me about this. Uh, this is a test I'm not doing a lot of, and so um, tell me about your your neurobiogenic amines and how that how that gives you a lot of e uh, efficiency and what you're going to do with the patient. Yeah, and, there, and there's a lot of controversy on urinary neurotransmitters, um, you know. But if you look at it from a standpoint of, you know, we're not looking at norepinephrine or dopamine or epinephrine levels and saying you're deficient or or there's too much based on some of these numbers. It's, it's looking at the big picture, and what's great about this is a it gives us a lot of information. It gives us metabolites of how relevant a COMP-T or a mouse SNP is. So if somebody has, you know, a, a MAO genetic variant and um, we want to find out, you know, is that relevant in terms of how their body is producing serotonin, you know, we can look at a 5-HIA uh, marker. We can look at, you know, HVA levels and, and um, you know, we can look at some of these metabolites and neurotransmitters to get a, a better picture in terms of connecting the dots on what's going on from a neurological standpoint with what's going on with a possible genetic predisposition and how that plays into it. When we talk about, you know, getting the whole feedback loop back online, you need the brain. You need, you, need, you need the brain to be back online with what you're trying to do with adrenals. And these neurogenic amine tests give us some insight onto what things from a genetic standpoint are, are possibly clinically relevant and where do we possibly need to put most of our focus in in trying to unlock and optimize that function. That's awesome. Good stuff. How long have you been using that now for? I, well, I've used uh, the neuro neurotransmitter test off and on for a handful of years. Um, there's a handful of labs I've used. I've been using doctor's data of recent because uh, another one of the labs I was using, they were um, actually, the, some of their testing was put on hold because they had some turnover in their, in their clinical director. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't run the neurogenic means on every patient, um, patient specific. If so, if somebody comes in with some, uh, you know, chronic adrenal stress and they've done so many things and haven't responded to treatment and they have COMP-T SNPs or MAL SNPs or PNMT SNPs uh, or dopamine beta hydrogenase SNPs. This is something I'm going to look at because I want to see what's going on from a, a neurological uh, neurotransmitter standpoint, how they're synthesizing and breaking these things down. And I guess that I mean those SNPs along with the with the historical findings of anxiety or or mm -hmm. or neurotransmission problems, correct? Yeah. Yeah, because the thing is, if somebody comes with anxiety and they have these genetic, you know, components that are there, you know, maybe the last thing you want to do is start them off on maybe some supplements based on what you think genetically may work because you may drive their anxiety, uh, you know, uh, you know, up. And so having a test like this to run, really connect the dots a little bit may give you a little bit better clinical insight onto where is the problem, where is that log jam, and how can we unlock or address that a little bit better. Cool. So then, then move into the micro spectra cell, the micronutrient testing. Um, give us a little insight on on obviously how this would relate to the clinical picture as well. Yeah, you know, and so we talked about four tests. I threw a fifth one in there that I use pretty frequently. You know, because we talk about the cofactor component of these genetic uh, 
these tests, they're very dependent. And so what's great about micronutrient testing is we're looking at the nutrient status inside the cell. So if your doctor was to send you to, you know, LabCorp or Quest to, to check your B12 levels or your, your, your folate levels, it's, it's telling you how much of those vitamins are in the serum. It's really an injustice. It's really not giving you insight into the nutritional status of what's going on from an intercellular standpoint because it's inside the cell where the magic happens. And tests like this can really save a lot of time because if somebody has a, a deficiency in something, you, you're going to want to put that in place so that they are able to put a little more gas in the tank. And so this is something I run quite frequently with patients because it just gives us an insight and, and in terms of maybe what nutrients they're burning through causing a deficiency or possibly what nutrients they're deficient in because they're not able to get it from a dietary intake or metabolize it or absorb it properly. Right, and then that obviously is the cofactor. I use the example that's the toll road, and if you you know if you have a two lane highway and you don't have any toll road toll tolls to get through the the, the intersection, then then it doesn't matter if it's an eight lane highway and there's no steps. You need these these um, cofactors to drive those these um, these energies to happen as or energy production to happen as well. All right, so epigenetic yeah, component. Yeah. yeah, so yeah, so has the epigenetics or yeah epigenetics. You know, we've talked about this off and on all night. You know, it's what drives the genetics. And so, you know, one of the things I know we've talked about this a lot, Joel, is, you know, you see with your patients, I see with my patients is, you know, there's this toxic burden that is stressing things. And if you're not putting on your, your investigative cap and figuring out if some of these things are there, there's definitely going to be limitations because these infections will speed up or slow these enzymes down, which is definitely affecting how the body is is functioning from a hormonal standpoint. Right. Oh, yeah, and that's I mean that's key. That's the that's really where you're gonna make the most important improvements as well. So um all right, so then this is the part of the seminar I really wanted to talk to you about, which was living under the bell shaped curve. So kinda give us an example. So we've talked about you've you've you, you had a genetic test, um we understand the pathways, we understand how the catecholamines and, and ad adrenalines or epinephrines are are made, how the cortisol is produced through um, downstream mechanisms, through enzymes that convert cholesterol into in progesterone and into DHEA or into cortisol, and liver enzymes that are necessary for all that to happen. We talked about um, the um, spectra cell and vi vital um, nutrients that could be de deficient. We've talked about also um, the organic acid testing. So really, so you got a good clinical picture on someone, and yet there's no exact science to say, okay, I'm going to just give you this, this and that and, and you're going to feel good so what, what's your what's your algorithm or what's your starting point given that you you're in a certain you've pigeonholed yourself in a direction of what you want to do so what what would you do to try to get that person feeling better and, and knowing that it's helping or it's not helping and in and, and terms of living under that bell-shaped curve yeah and, and this is vital because the thing is when we're talking about these nutrients they're very powerful and it's not a set and forget it. And so when you get this information, like you said, you, you, you've got all this clinical, um, you know, you got this clinical picture on how to address this properly. It's not here's these, you know, three or four supplements, take this dosage every day, same dose, same timing, 
we know it just doesn't work that way. And I have a lot of patients that will come in with a, a list of supplements that they're either doing on their own or maybe a doctor recommended for them, and they work for a little while, and, and they just bottomed out again. And so when we talk about this bell-shaped curve is we want to, we want to live in this optimal range right here where we're feeling and functioning at 100% or close to it all the time. And so a lot of people will go from an undermethylated state to an overmethylated state based on these nutrients. So somebody can, you know, start with fatigue, take some of these supplements, feel good where they're in this optimal range for a few days, few weeks, and they're taking the same dose every single day, they can start overdoing it where they drive themselves into an overmethylated state where maybe they crash the system or maybe they develop a whole new a whole new list of symptoms. And so we to do this properly, once you figure out all of this information on how these things are connected and you've been able to put these pieces of the puzzle together, it's really important for somebody to understand that they have to learn to read their body. They have to wake up on any given day and understand how they're feeling, how they're functioning to determine what they have to do. They need to wake up and find out, are they on an overmethylated side when they wake up that day? Are they on an over overmethylated, overstimulated standpoint that day? Because the things they may take when they're undermethylated versus the things they take when they're feeling overmethylated, it may be a little bit different because the whole goal is to have optimal function. So we talk about pulsing nutrients. We talk about maybe somebody's going to have a, a, a handful of supplements and they take this, this, and this if they're feeling these symptoms, and they take this and this if they're feeling this symptoms so that they live under that bell-shaped curve in that optimal range a majority of the time. So so that's right. So then if you if you have someone that takes uh a couple of supplements and and oh so let's give us an example with um starting out. So if you're not sure on how someone's mitochondrial function is and if you start to rev them too fast, um typically it's also good for figuring out um how how aggressive or how quick or or what your starting point's going to be in a certain area as well. Is, is that correct? Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and and like I said, these nutrients are powerful. And when you start putting them in, in play, and I think some of the, the best information that we get working with patients when we start doing this, you know, having all these pieces, is when you put something in and how they respond. Because then it takes you down another rabbit hole. It, you know, if you, if you put a certain nutrient in and overstimulates them, you know, sometimes that gives you the answer on how to truly – you know, fix and regulate things at an optimal level. So, um, and I think that's one of the biggest downfalls is the model right now is a set and forget it. And, and, and to truly heal and to truly optimize things, you know, it, it can't be done that way. Right. Well, I think that's and we have plans to really help patients out in the future um, in terms of not just giving you supplements to set it and forget it, but to understand, really understand what's driving your own mechanics. It's all about that education and thinking of it like a hand glider. And, you you know, at some point you want to just be soaring and not expending a little bit of a lot of energy to, to stay afloat. Whereas, you know, when you feel yourself dip, you got to expend a little bit of energy to get yourself back up. And I think that's where the real education comes in and that's where genetic formulas and, and things like that is going to help patients understand that whole process as well. 
that's a little bit of a teaser to come. So anyways, John, I want to thank you so much. I know we carried on, and I want to thank everyone who's who's been on the call for this long. It's a lot of information. Um, I would urge people who weren't on the call, I know they're super busy, to listen to this in their car and, and listen to it again because there's a lot of clinical pearls in, in, the, um, in the topic that we went over. And as you can tell, Dr. John is, is certainly an expert in this area, and I'm going to try to twist his arm to get him on some more calls and 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 more information so i really thank thank you john for doing that today and i appreciate your time well thank you for letting me be part of it and i look forward to uh some future uh, calls with you thanks for tuning into today's show if you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our adrenal awakening program here's what to do next head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen, and we'll talk to you soon.